Hi guys, come on in, sit down and relax, put in your fancy iPhone earbuds. You're about to listen to Let's Talk Iran and Stuff, a podcast about all things Iran related and pretty much anything else I find to be particularly interesting. I'm your host, my name is Razan Marashi. I'm an Iranian American, I'm a lovable jerk. I'm a big fan of the Korean fried chicken wings at Mondu, and most importantly, I'm the research director at the National Iranian American Council. I'm sitting here live in my office in Washington, D.C., and before we go any further, make sure to check out NIAC and support NIAC at www.niacouncil.org, and you can also check us out on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, or Ask Jeeves, or any other online platform of your choosing. This is episode number five of the podcast since our reboot in May. If you haven't listened to the first four episodes, you need to check them out. For new listeners, here's a quick refresher course about the mission of this podcast. In my eternal quest to give knowledge to the people, I'm going to hit up as many friends and colleagues as possible to share their expertise with you about all things Iran-related, and pretty much anything else I find to be particularly interesting. Like a fine wine, this podcast will only get better with age, so if you keep listening, I'll keep providing you with top-notch content that's free from the typical Washington, D.C. spin, and that's a Reza Marashi promise. This week, my guest is Fatima Ayub. She's a political scientist currently based in Jordan with 15 years background in conflict, security, and human rights issues in the Middle East and South Asia. She currently works with the global consulting firm Adam Smith International, seeking solutions to Jordan's economic challenges, and she's an associate policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. She is also a professional contrarian and peddles insight and absurdity on Twitter as The Cynicist. Fatima and I talked about similarities between the problems facing Jordan and other Middle Eastern countries, the failure of politics in the Middle East and in the West, the challenge of parsing through human rights and sectarianism, what the Chilquat inquiry into the Iraq war tells us about our own failures, and our shared love of Radiohead. <laughs> I think you're going to like it a lot. I think you're going to learn a lot. And much respect to Fatima for agreeing to chalk it up with me. So without further ado, enjoy the show. Hi. Hi. Thank you for coming. It's my pleasure. No, the pleasure is mine. And allow me to explain why, okay? Um, all of the other people that I've done this with so okay. far, this podcast, since we restarted it. Like, yes. Uh, I've, I've, I'd met them before. Like, I knew them. They're yeah. friends. They you, physically existed in your world. Yeah. Okay. You were the first person who I didn't know. Uh, I feel like in – so this, this podcast is predicated on giving knowledge to the people. That is the premise. Fair and uh, I, as I continue to try and do that, I want the people to know that uh, I had never met you before. I knew who you were on Twitter, right. which is how everybody meets in 2016, That's right? That's my real it's, personality. Ba- exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I was like, well, she's funny, and she's oh, smart. Thanks. Uh, this person would be good on a podcast. And I asked, 
and you're like, hey, as a matter of fact, I think I'd be willing to do that. And I think uh, that's awesome because most people would probably be weirded out by that. But No, no, come on. I think uh, for me, I was like, oh, my God, I finally get to meet, you know, Rizomaroshi in the flesh. It was like a big deal for me, yeah. Oh, well, I'm sorry yeah. for the letdown. <laughs> <laughs> it's all downhill from here. <laughs> it's, you know, you know, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. Well, I got all these expectations I have to live up to now. But Standards, man. Stan- well, we should all have them. <laughs> but um, there's all these things that you can learn about somebody uh, through Twitter. Or, or Facebook or social media, right? Sure. Um, and since I've only talked to you for f- like five minutes before this podcast started, um, I have a lot of those things yes. that I want to ask. Okay. Um, but before we dive into those things and before we dive into the actual substance, we start off every podcast by playing a short clip of a song. Sure. And the song that you chose uh, is Bangers and Mash by Radiohead, which I think is awesome because Radiohead's an awesome band and because I love all things British uh, oh really? From the accent to the sense of humor, one hundred percent. Oh wow! Okay. To the, well, like I've dated British women because it, I, like, I the was whole married thing. to a British guy, but yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> so you some things you like and some things you don't. Well, I lived in the UK for five years, and so, uh, but I, I, I ultimately I never really clicked with the country. Uh huh. Um, and it's sort of in the aftermath of of Brexit, I'm rethinking all of those things about oh, they sound so smart when they talk. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. yeah. So it makes you wonder then, because I was wondering the same thing. Uh, is it kind of like the equivalent of a southern accent in the United States? Where <laughs> <laughs> no, it's no. it's not like that. It's just I think that Americans have this weird cultural love affair with the British. Always yeah. have had. And there's something about that accent that inspires sort of, you know, the kind of the, the royalty and all the dreams of empire. And, 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 we have, and we have this sort of attitude that we have a cultural compatibility since we speak the same language and we have this, this historical tie. It, like nothing could be further from the truth. We are right. so fundamentally different. 100%. And so uh, that, was, that was kind of like a rude awakening when I was living there. Oh, man. Yeah. I, okay, so I, I want to come back to that. Okay. But I have to ask you first and foremost why you chose... Uh, Radiohead, Bangers and Mash. What do you like about that song? Why'd you choose it? Okay, so I told you I got profound anxiety when you told me to pick a song because I was like, oh my God, should I pander to the audience and like pick Gogosh or should I, you know, (laughs) or should I go sort of like, you know, super ironic and pick something silly? Should I go with my gangster rap phase of the 90s? Yeah. Um, And and then ultimately I was like, okay, let's let's try for something a bit genuine. And so Radiohead has been my favorite band for, you know, almost two decades now. And I'm going to see them in concert in two weeks uh, at uh, Madison Square Garden. Nice. Paid like for those tickets. Yeah. I bet you did. Oh my god. And uh, but <laughs> then I was like, well, I don't want to lower the tone. I mean, profa- like Radiohead's music is profoundly melancholy. So I tried to find the one uh, really upbeat Radiohead song I could, and that's Bangers and Mash. And I saw yeah. Tom York play this song live, and he's not he's not usually a drummer, but he gets this little drum set. He's just like wailing on the drums, and it's like a very kind of upbeat and interesting different song for Radiohead so I, I decided to go with that for your for your that's uh, awesome for the pleasure of your audience uh, that's awesome uh, and and the pleasure of me frankly because yes. I, I even though Radiohead is pretty much loved around the world I don't understand why some people will say eh you know they're all right no soul yeah no soul. I think I think I must be it's like it's not, it's not Coldplay <laughs> man it's Radiohead right I I your viewers can't see my face but you can <laughs> But no, there's there's really no comparison. There's no comparison. But I feel like they get compared actually quite frequently. In fact, confused for one another sometimes. I, I, I think that you have to have like a really t- 
tone deaf ear if you can't distinguish between Coldplay and Radiohead. I'd be, I'd be glad to agree. I'm yeah. inclined to agree. Yeah, no, but. I think look, I, look, I think that they're a fantastic band. They have a real ability to to, to write things that are innovative and new, and their sound has evolved, and you can you can sort of feel it over time, but. As with all forms of art, and this is one of the reasons I really like the fact that you open your podcast with a sort of, you know, a musical experience, and you get your yeah. your your guests to describe how they feel about the song or why they chose it, is because, like, ultimately, of, of all the of all the human endeavors, you know, whether it's like politics or, or anything, um, art and beauty are the only things that really last, and so and and they make such profoundly beautiful music and very music uh, moving music. So I decided that uh, you know I'd try and share some of that with your, with your guests. Well, your I audience. think the people need uh, something profound and something beautiful because we're living in frightening times, right? terrifying, Ter- times. terrifying times. And um, gosh, there's so many directions I want to take this conversation in right now because I, I could talk about the UK all day okay. uh, and all things British all day. Um, we I guess we can come back to that as as, as part of what we use to cl- to close the show. Sure. Um, but. You know, <sighs> saying that we're living in frightening times uh, could mean so many different things, sure. right? It, it, it could we could be talking about domestic politics in the United States and and, and who the potential presidential candidates, uh, not who the presidential candidates are. We know who they are. Who the next potential president could potentially be? Uh, we could be talking about people of color getting killed left and right uh, by police officers. Yeah. We could be talking about, uh, in, it, well, at least in my opinion, is uh, the, the disconnect between uh, the American political establishment and, and the American public on their feelings of uh, war and, and military intervention. Um, we could be talking about how the policies of, depending on your perspective, the past eight years or the past 16 years have created an unprecedented crisis across the globe. Yes. Across the globe. Absolutely. That doesn't just affect the United States, affects Europe, affects the Middle East as well. Sure. And nobody really wants to take responsibility for it. Um, so let, let's start there. Let's start with the easy stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> um, absolutely. And and, beca- and, and, and the reason why I want to start there is because it's actually a, un- a unique opportunity to compare notes. Because yeah. for those of you who are listening to this and you don't know, uh, Fatima lives in Amman, Jordan, right? That's right. And... Uh, what I can tell you as the outsider looking in from Amman, Jordan, is uh, if you thought Jordan prior to uh, the, the, the catastrophe that's taking place in Syria, if you thought uh, Jordan had problems before then, I would say look at Jordan now and we should be asking ourselves how much longer before this ticking time bomb goes off yeah. with consequences and repercussions that I don't think anybody is fully comprehending, never mind discussing. Sure. But I feel like I'm being presumptuous when I say that sitting in my office in Washington, D.C. So explain to the people, because you're sitting in Amman, Jordan, sure. uh, what you're seeing there um, and, and how all of this connects, how all of the dots connect in terms of uh, the kinds of problems that are facing Jordan, uh, political, economic, social, and the degree to which that does or doesn't resemble the kinds of challenges that the rest of the Middle East is facing. Fair enough. I think I've, look, I've been in Jordan now for about three years. I moved there to study Arabic. Um, and in many ways, it's it's a paradox of a country. Some would argue that it has, it's you know, its, it's history suggests that it shouldn't really exist. It was kind of carved out of a piece of Saudi Arabia. Um, and it has, to some extent, the same problems that 
a lot of these sort of what are now called upper middle income countries around the world, and Jordan is considered an upper middle income country, faces um, very high levels of youth unemployment, um, an economy that's stagnating. I mean, global economic growth is stagnating, but Jordan's is in particular. Um, an influx of upwards of a million uh, refugees from Syria. Before that, you had upwards of a million refugees from Iraq. And you've had a, a, like a standing kind of non-Jordanian population who were the Palestinians displaced uh, in 1948 and then that's again right. in 1967. So the country has become, in some ways, this, this, this weird cultural patchwork. Um, and the trick with or, or the real problem that I think countries like Jordan face is how you integrate and accommodate all of these different groups into your society, into your political life. And Jordan's a monarchy. It's an absolute monarchy. And that's not really likely to change. And I think that it, it has this very, very strong security architecture. Um, the scale of which no one really understands. I've been doing economic research on Jordan, and part of that has been entailed looking at their budget. It's very, very hard, and this is again the case across the Middle East, it's very hard to understand how much spending actually goes into the military, the security services, the internal police, the, you know, all, and all of the associated organs of you know, state security. Um, but it comprises 27% of government spending, wow. which is very, very high when you compare to, to developed nations where that number usually runs between 5 and 7%. So um, you have this kind of very bloated, very brittle security architecture, which may or may not be able to confront the security, the very real security challenges that Jordan faces. Um, and you also, I don't think, have a recognition of how serious the economic problems in the country are becoming. When, uh, you know, 30% of your population is unemployed. 30%? 30% are unemployed. Um, and there's there aren't really opportunities in the formal workforce to address that challenge. And there isn't, to be perfectly honest, I don't think a political recognition of how volatile that, that can become. And so Jordan has, and my experience in sort of, you know, dealing with Jordanian friends and trying to understand how this country functions is that the catastrophes that are unfolding around it make people simply very grateful that there isn't essentially blood being shed on the streets every day. And so it's made people quite wary of trying to chart out a new course for the future. Man, that sounds like you're on. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I, I suspect you can see some of the parallels there. And, and that's, in my view, it's a totally rational and reasonable response. Yeah, absolutely. But where I think that um, where, where there's a critical challenge, and this is something that will relate back to some of your earlier themes, is that there really isn't a vision or a leadership to present a kind of credible or meaningful alternative. Huh for political change in these countries. And this is something we, we, we very rapidly saw in the aftermath of revolutions um, in other parts of the Middle East, whereby you had very, very large, you know, justifiably angry um, citizens who had essentially had enough. And they basically, um, they were basically able to unseat whatever the leadership was at the time. But then, all of the all of the sort of credible alternatives, whether it was in the form of the Muslim Brotherhood or secular parties, it became clear very quickly that their that their reach or or their constituencies were very very small, and so what happened was is that you basically have these leaderless movements fundamentally that are demanding some kind of change. They don't know what kind of change they want, um, and then that kind of that impetus towards any kind of meaningful reform or institutionalizing the changes you want to see never really happens. Yeah. And, um, 
and that's and that's a catastrophe. And I would argue, I would argue that in to to some extent, what we saw with Brexit, what we're seeing now in the American political elections, is that 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 disenchantment with the people who nominally are meant to represent your interests um, don't, and then there's no way to hold them accountable. And accountability is, I think, one of the other things we want to talk about. I know you mentioned we we might want to come back and talk about the Chilcot report and the implications of that. But ultimately, I mean, and, and this is where, this is something I've been thinking about for some time because, you know, looking at the Middle East or looking at Europe, where you're seeing this dramatic rise again of the far right, we thought we'd put that monster to bed. Right. Um, and we haven't. And so, you know, there's, there's a fundamental disenchantment with the exercise of politics. And, you know, I'm 33 years old. And the, the Iraq war, for example, was probably like the, the defining moment of my political consciousness. I was 19, 20 years old uh, when, when it became clear that the United States was going to go to war in Iraq. And the decision-making around that policy was so fundamentally flawed and so destructive. And I was 20. And fair enough, I was a student of political science, and I could see that. But the fact of the matter is, when you take such catastrophic decisions for which there is no accountability, um, and then you repeat it, whether it's in terms of policing or it's in terms of how your financial sector behaves and then breaks the world economy, and I mean, that was that entire crisis was both preventable and fraudulent. Yeah. If people truly understood the scale of how badly screwed they were, um, you would have had a revolution here. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that um, there is a reason, there is a reason people don't trust the political class, but it's not for the sort of the shallow and populist kind of phrasings that you hear. It's because people take bad decisions, they're never held accountable for bad decisions, no one wants to take responsibility, as you were saying before, but people are rightful to be mistrustful. Yeah, and absolutely. And um, in the same way that you know, we argue that, uh, and I've, across the Middle East, the education sector in all of these countries is flailing, um, and there's you know there's not enough resources dedicated to it. But the way in which people teach and learn is very very superficial. You don't want to encourage critical thinking uh, among populations where people are going to start asking why. Um, but what happens on the other side is that in some contexts you have people who ask why and then you have people there to give them the wrong answer. Yeah. Donald Trump, Nigel Farage. And, and, and you know, the, these are deeply craven, opportunistic people who are willing to break their countries for the sake of their own political gain. That's right. But if you're not able to meaningfully engage people to get them to find answers to these questions, th th this is really the only thing that's going to happen. Yeah, this I mean, this comes down. It's so much of what you're saying. Uh, not only do I agree with, uh, but also it reminds me of this conversation I'm having with one of my best friends who lives in London. Yeah, uh, he's Iranian Swedish guy, uh, great guy and super smart. And, and we have these discussions where um, he still firmly believes in the neoliberal idea, probably conceived. Okay. And I'm starting to ask a lot of questions. Sure. Like this wasn't how it was supposed to play out. No. And. All of the things that you just described that are happening domestically in the U.S. and other Western countries are uh, not entire carbon copies, but uh, let me say, I guess, let me take a step back. I feel like pe a lot of people in the Middle East, the majority of people in the Middle East, at least that I've come across, and correct me if, you're, if I'm wrong because you've lived there, sure. rejected the neoliberal idea a long time ago sure. because they saw what it produced in their countries, whether it was sanctions, war, or a complete disregard for the values that America and other Western countries 
claim to prioritize. Sure. Uh, and then rapidly sacrifice at the altar of more practical, uh, you know, geopolitical interests. Yeah. Yeah. But nobody ever thought that that nonsense would wash up on our shores, and it has. Sure. Big time. And so I absolutely agree with you that people like Donald Trump, but not just Donald Trump. Sure. I mean, uh, congressional and, and, and senatorial elections and, and, and gubernatorial elections don't get as much attention on a national level. But I feel like these kinds of issues have been personified in, in, in those elections uh, for years now. Sure. Um, and we are emerging from uh, the Obama administration, which uh, if – Previous podcast listeners listen to the to the episode I did with Mariam. I always say I had three stages of Obama, where first I drank the Kool Aid, then I was like, "Why are you drowning people? Why aren't you closing Guantanamo? Sure. Why are you sanctioning innocent people in Iran? Why are you doing continuing the war in Afghanistan? Why are you doing all of these things that to me weren't good?" Sure. And then I c- essentially came to this, you know, cynical, typically Reza realization of this is about as good as we're going to get, and whatever comes after this isn't going to be nearly as good. Sure. And then I have a fundamental problem with that because, like, it, it, we deserve better. We we as a country should be able to do better. Sure. And, and unless we do better in, in, in our own Western countries, then, like, how do we have conversations with, never mind the Russians and the Chinese, but the Iranians or the Syrians, for God's sakes, or, or, or others to say, hey, you know, get, get your, uh, I was about to swear, <laughs> get your stuff together. Yes. <laughs> I, so Iran and stuff. Iran and stuff. Exactly. <laughs> So it's a, uh, I mean, to what extent do you think that people uh, in Jordan and elsewhere in the Middle East throughout your travel, because I'm sure you travel other places as well, sure. uh, to what degree have you seen them kind of say, you know, I'm not really buying what you're selling, America. I'm not really buying what you're selling, uh, UK or other European countries. Yeah. I th- The debate, interestingly enough, is not really framed around at the level of public discourse, isn't really framed around what the U.S. says or what the U.K. says. There is a really dangerous precedent at at the highest level of politics whereby the notion that uh, a state should be criticized or is allowed to be criticized on the basis of their human rights practices or the way that they conduct politics in their region. We saw most recently there was a flap between uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and the United Nations about their conduct in the war in Yemen, which is you know, taken a country that was already suffering from, you know, multiple plagues of political crisis and poverty and water shortages, et cetera, et cetera, and, and made it a thousand times worse. Yeah. And, and, and the attitude of not just the Saudi government, but governments around the region is this sort of you no longer have a say in defining what is right and wrong in our international system. And to some extent, that's a byproduct of the fact that the international system doesn't actually respond to the very pressing and compelling crises that the world is facing. But it is also in part a general kind of middle finger to to states like the US or the UK who have purported to uphold this ideal of universal human rights or good conduct of states, et cetera, which is all nonsense. And I am possibly more cynical than you are. It's (laughs) sort of my brand. That's why I like you. Yes, I know. Just met you, already like you. Um, but, the, but, but what underlies the, what's more problematic than a sort of a failure of the neoliberal consensus is the fact that we at some point became very comfortable with this idea or sort of, we thought the idea that humans basically recognized one another's equality or were generally moving towards the direction of recognizing that or understanding that, you know, dignity and respect for your fellow citizen 
is, is really the kind of the framework that should guide our, our human interactions. We thought that idea had won. That idea hasn't won. Yeah. And most of the world, people don't actually believe that. People here don't actually believe that. No, it, it sort of, if you had to kind of fund, in, 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 a, in a sort of deeper way, examine people, people's attitudes and values, you know, towards the people that they live with in their societies, they don't, they don't believe that. And I think that that's possibly what troubles me more than anything else, because all of these ideas sort of have to be underpinned by, by a recognition that, okay, my my view or my vote or anything counts as much as the next person's, even though that person may not necessarily care or have invested as much time in looking at these topics or understanding these issues. Fundamentally, because I'm an individual, you're an individual, we all get to participate in this together. People don't actually accept this idea. And this was actually a really dangerous thing that I heard when uh, people were talking about the outcome of the, the EU referendum in the UK, which was like, well, you have these like slack jawed yokels who have decided to vote to, uh, you know, have decided to vote to leave the EU and they've com committed political suicide for the entire country. And, and frankly, this is why these people should never be allowed to participate in these processes. And I'm like, you sound like a fascist. You yeah. sound insane. Exactly. Um, but to, but to come back, I mean, I think that there is a, there's a profound um, discomfort or an open question still in most of the Middle East as to who does get to participate. Yeah. Uh, women, the big, big, uh, big gaping hole there for yeah. most of, for most of the region, um, and uh, people who are not citizens of your country and sort of take the majority of the Gulf states. The, the majority of the people who live in the Gulf are not actually Gulf citizens. That's They're right. They're people who have migrated there to 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 work and to um, you know, help the economies and societies function, and um, what a what ultimately happens to those people? And do you can you make them part of your society? And that opens up all kinds of other problems around class and race. And these are all like very like unreconciled ideas. And the public debate around these things is only is moving very slowly. It yeah. moves more on social media. It moves more in that universe. But in in sort of the day to day mechanics of political life, those conversations don't happen. Yes. Oh man. I mean. On the one hand, uh, social media, I always say Twitter is kind of like a cesspool of, of, of humanity oh. where on the one hand, like I enjoy it because it's this outlet where I can say all the ridiculous things that I can't say, for example, when I'm doing a television interview. Um, so right. it, it's therapeutic in one way. Sure. And it's therapeutic until I click the, the little at button and I look at my mentions oh. and then all of these courageous, yeah. anonymous yeah. Uh, people have yeah. very unkind things to say. So if I ever want to feel good about myself, I just don't check yeah. My mentions ever. Yeah. No, I I have thankfully somehow, and I maybe shouldn't say this because it might draw the wrong crowd. I have thankfully managed to avert a lot of abuse. I I, I don't yeah. know how that's happened. You're basically the, asking for me to heckle you on Twitter yeah. right now. No, no, no. You're good. <laughs> you're good. I can I can I can deal with that. I can manage you. Yeah. But it's um that there there are like I I know I have a, a number of friends who have left have left social media because they received just so much like non-stop abuse yeah um for being a woman or for having an opinion or for or for ha or kind of challenging a consensus on an issue and, and 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 look again i think that what's happened with social media and again it, it this goes back to the point i was talking about earlier where there's like a failure of vision and leadership yeah um in our political culture sort of writ large this is not this is not like a, a problem in one place or another but you know the the notion that you want um, 
you know, that, that the left is going to consistently move in a particular direction. And, and I've quite frankly given up on, on the kind of the conventional left-right description or classification of politics. I don't know that it, it necessarily flies anymore. And I don't know that those divisions have a great deal of meaning to, to people yeah. either. Um, but in any case, the sort of the, the, the presumed values in which the liberal left ostensibly stood for um, don't really have champions anymore. Um, whether it's at sort of the the kind of highbrow intellectual level, I was kind of casting around in my own head the other day. I'm like, who are the meaningful, like intellectuals who shape our discourse um, and who help us think about the very very serious challenges that this world faces in a meaningful way? And I couldn't think of anyone. Yeah. Um, the last one I think was probably Tony Judd, and you know, may he rest in peace. But yeah. w w you know, we. But uh, but I think that why this links to this this phenomenon of people having access, nominally having access to more information, having access to social media where they're able to you know discuss or debate these issues, it hasn't produced a more informed group of people. It's simply produced people who are stuck in their respective echo chambers yeah. and who think that because they can read, write, and type and have a smartphone that uh, that whatever opinion they have to offer is valid and needs to be and needs to be respected now there's there's this level of you know that you know who are our great thinkers and I, I I don't have an answer to that and that and that troubles me 100 percent but the the, 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 the the related challenge is that like most people do not care about Tony Judd and, and they don't have to the question is the values that we stand for in trying to build more open more progressive societies that are to everyone that address the needs of the marginalized um, and that address the real failures again of accountability in our own systems that conversation is not happening so and, and whether again you know you brought up the issue of the conduct of policing in America it, it, it's so fundamental it's so curious to me because the US and lots of governments put a lot of money into reforming security sectors in other countries yeah and this is and this is something we do because you know, your, your police in the first instance are the first line of interaction between the citizen and the state. They're the first kind of, uh, the, the first person you interact with when you're talking about law and order, when you're talking about, or what we call the rule of law in other places. We have different phrases for when we talk about these things in other countries versus when we talk about them in the US as though they're different phenomenon. They're not. They're not. Um, but what, what underpins the, the notion that, you know, your security services have to be accountable um, is that if you're if citizens don't trust these services, it begins to erode the trust between institutions and, and society. And yeah. so, this is something that people have been repeating now for for years in America, and it keeps reaching a crisis point, and then it kind of falls out of the headlines until the next time it happens, and it happens every day. Yeah. And so there is no real, there's no genuine exercise in understanding what is wrong with how we police our communities and the very very serious abuses that happen within that and, it, and it's heartbreaking because nominally we in the US have a more open environment to discuss these things and to address them and we nominally have a justice system that you know is founded in law and you know, you know subscribes to the principles of fairness and equality and, and, and it doesn't move and so and that's when you start to ask, and many people have, have sort of understood this implicitly for years, who does the system stand for? And when you conclude that the system doesn't stand for you, that's when things start to get ugly. Yeah. And when you don't have people who can speak to the issues of, 
how do we fix this and how do you actually get people to create solutions to these problems? Um, and that's, that's where the real failure of the left has been, whether it's here in the UK or other parts of Europe, is like you cannot communicate a meaningful uh, solution and you can't engage people in those solutions. You haven't managed to convince people that, hey, taking part in this process, not going online and tweeting about it, yeah. you know, taking part in this process and understanding how it works is important for, for, for basically everyone in the spectrum. And, you know, arguably, no one really wants that much public participation, right? You have to ask a question <laughs> of, you, you got to ask the question of sort of, if you have to start addressing the needs of the seriously disenfranchised in your society, yeah, who's going to lose in that process? Well, of course, who wouldn't want power without accountability? And, and, but that's where we've arrived. That is where we've that, arrived. That's unfortunately where we've arrived. It's a, it's a high, and that's why this is probably what terrifies me most. Yeah. About the way in which politics seems to work is that the question of when someone really, really screws up, who is going to come and say, shouldn't have done that, and um, and make sure it doesn't happen again. And that's the critical part that sort of, you know, you have actors who just sort of conduct themselves with impunity here or in Afghanistan or whatever, and then they become vice president of the country. Yeah. We're talking about Navalny, not Joe Biden. <laughs> Poor guy. Poor guy. No, we'll miss Joe when he's gone. But I, it's so everything that you talk about right now uh, reminds me of what was it? Um, it's hard to keep track of all of the African Americans that are being killed by the police in the United States because it literally just happened like twice in the past 24 hours, yes. I think. Um, yes. But a couple of weeks ago, um, God, I can't remember which city. Anyway, it happened a couple of weeks ago. I'm getting all the cities mixed up because sure. it's happening far too frequently now. Yeah. And I was talking to a few of my friends here, who, and you know, uh, they were of the opinion that while uh, you know the police should never uh, willy-nilly kill people, um, you know, uh, they were saying that some of these people were armed or some of these people were resisting arrest, etc. So, anyway, moral of the story: uh, I'm a huge Malcolm X fan uh, as an intellectual oh, yeah. and as a leader. Uh, okay. Probably one of my all-time favorites, and I've read the autobiography of Malcolm X a million times, etc., yes. etc. Et yes. um, and I was playing them some videos mm-hmm. of Malcolm. Both uh, pre-Hodge Malcolm and post-Hodge Malcolm. Yeah, you know, uh, because even though there were some fundamental changes, he, like, as a man, I don't think that the the fundamental tenet of what he was trying to achieve differed. It was the the, the method by which he went about it was slightly altered. He he didn't he did he anyway he, he didn't become a completely different person, and which sure. is the common perception, right? Sure. Same thing with Muhammad Ali. They're like, oh, no, he became this totally new person. I was like, no, he wasn't able to speak anymore, and then he was, <laughs> he was palatable to you. If he was oh. able to speak, he would yeah. have been saying things that would have made you feel very uncomfortable. Yeah. So I'm playing them these videos, and they're like, my God, like somebody could be saying this right now about 2016 sure. America, and it would be 100% poignant. And I said, yes, but that's only problem number one. Problem number two is there is no Malcolm. There's not even a yes. Martin, never mind a Malcolm. Sure. You know, nobody wants to be Martin because he was marching down the middle of the street and he got shot. And, sure. And nobody wants to be Malcolm because once you start to stand up and speak out and, and you have this aspect of about it. Like, look at the guy. Did you see this guy? What was his name? Jesse Williams, where yeah. he gave a speech at the BET Awards. Yes. Talking about African-Americans getting gunned down and the backlash that this guy got. Right. He didn't even say anything controversial, in my humble opinion. So yes. hey, nobody wants to be that because then, you know, uh, professional opportunities dry up. Like if you go against the status quo, if you go against the grain, then you're adversely affecting yourself professionally. Um, and obviously, I don't subscribe to those views, sure. but I think a lot of people do. And I think that's one of many reasons why we don't see uh, the emergence of new Malcolms and Martins, at least in the United States or, or Western countries. It may be, look, I, I 
I'm not sure what accounts for or what you know everyone is a product of their time and their circumstances and I don't know what accounts for the fact that we're having a bit of a drought in terms of um, you know visionaries or people of principle and character to actually take our our discourse for our societies in a, in a meaningful and a positive direction yeah uh, and I you know we could talk about socioeconomics we can talk of about the failure of the American education system, which has a, w- which has a serious crisis, both in terms of primary, secondary, and higher education. Which again, we love to talk about these things and how they don't work in other countries. We have, a, th- th- I think, that there's a real blind spot in talking about some of these issues. Um, again, a- a- and this is a, this is again a product of my having not lived in the states for almost a decade. Yeah. Um, when I come back and I look at the conversations, and I, it, to me, they seem that they're totally off-piste. We seem to kind of mi- we seem to miss the point every single time. It's sort of we are not facing challenges that are different, fundamentally different from other places. Right. Um, we've somehow lulled ourselves into a sense of false security that someone is dealing with this. I assume someone is dealing with this. But if you, you're looking at, um, but but to, but to stick to the point, why we don't, you know, produce you know radical. And the fundamentalists we're talking about, we, you, you want like radical change. Um, that attitude emerges, I think, I- at two points. You want radical change whereby you think that there is enough appetite and interest to move your, sh- your, your systems or modes of political behavior in a different direction. Right. Um, when you don't have people who are making that argument, I begin to wonder then have people sort of become resigned to the fact that the system doesn't change. We saw this, this was a phenomenon that a lot of my friends talk about in Russia, actually. Yeah. Um, it used to be that the media was very uncomfortable brushing up on certain uh, on certain issues, whether it was you know, the conduct of their politicians or the conduct of their security services or how the government conducted various aspects of its foreign policy. Um, and then there came a point, a, a more dangerous point, whereby the conversations were happening openly, the criticisms were happening, uh, happening openly, and no one cared. Yeah, and that's and that's a more dangerous point to be at. It's a good point. Um, yeah, 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 I hadn't thought about it that way. So, I, and I think that's what alarms me. There's no shortage of information, in in some respect, about what ails, for example, our justice system and the way that we do uh, policing or the way that we manage prisons and sort of the the, the real kind of. Um, we have a real blind spot still in our public conversation as to how this system is, in a sense managed to <laughs> uh, basically maintain certain, uh, for lack of a better, certain social and racial barriers. Yeah, it, yeah. And um, we, don't, uh, we, we, don't, we don't really have that conversation. But again, if, I mean, if you look at rates of incarceration and who's being incarcerated in this country and whether, or, you know, for, depending on the severity of crime, the color of your skin determines how much time you serve you know not Sad, not the severity of your crime and and, the, and this is just the, the and but there is no again there is not a meaningful conversation the, these become sort of niche specialized issues as though we shouldn't all concern ourselves with what this means for for our country yeah and and yeah and i think you know that's uh, and this is not just uh, the thing is is that the what frightens me about about trump for example is is that there is a there is a real disenfranchisement not just amongst you know um racial minority communities in the U.S. 
or in the black population or, or there, it happens in sort of the white working middle class as well. The, the kind of social mobility has stagnated in the US. Definitely. And people have real and genuine anger about that. And um, it's, again, it's not like anyone has communicated a meaningful solution. The only solution that people come up with is like, well, you should definitely build a wall and kick out the Muslims. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, this is going well, guys. Yeah. So. <laughs> yes, because it's very, very, uh, very crude and basic uh, and unfortunately. Uh, well, simple lies beat complex truths. Yeah. Right? And this is this is something I saw on Twitter, obviously. But it, it, it's true, unfortunately. Like a simple lie will beat a complex truth every time. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, populism is a, is a very dangerous and a very scary thing, particularly the way that it's manifesting itself here now. But it's not only manifesting itself here now. It's yeah. been manifesting itself in the Middle East to varying degrees sure. in a variety of different countries uh, for quite some time. Um, me personally, uh, one of the things that bothers me the most uh, about the Middle East uh, is the chronic human rights abuses in sure. pretty much all of the countries, if not every single one. Sure. You know, um, obviously the circumstances differ from place to place, but you know, human rights as defined and worked up, worked on by you know, uh, never mind the U.S. but the United Nations and, and human rights organizations and so on and so forth. Like, it's a big problem. Um, Absolutely. And you're living in the region, so what do you think are the biggest obstacles uh, in the region? And, and you don't have to go country specific, but you can if you want. What do you think are the biggest obstacles? to addressing long-standing human rights problem that plagues, in my opinion, most, if not all, of the Middle East? I know that's not a one-word answer, but it's something... All the easy questions it, today, man. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's something... But the, no, of course. So, so, so no, let, I, let, I me, let me preface your answer by saying that uh, everybody claims to be, you know, I care about human rights. Sure. Um, and I believe most people when they say it. I don't believe everyone. Like, I don't believe neoconservatives when they say it. Oh, God. Um, oh God. But that's another story for another day. Uh, but when I, I think once you start to talk about the practical application of it, that's when a lot of people who I think genuinely as individuals care about human rights fall by the wayside. Sure. Um, I experienced this at my time in the State Department. Working at the State Department, most, if not all of us, very much cared about human rights. Sure. And on an individual level or and even sometimes like in, on an office basis or, you know, bureau basis, because there's a Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor, sure. um, they very much care about the issue. But when, you, when it comes time to, quote-unquote, inject some political realism into the application of human rights in the Middle East, then it becomes this idea of interests versus values and which do you prioritize. And look, uh, you can call me naive, but I don't think it should work that way. Sure. You know, I, I think values should be an interest and, and it should be the number one interest. And I don't buy the argument that people make when they say, well, uh, if we as the United States, you know, try to hold the Saudis and our other allies accountable on human rights the same way that we treat the Iranians and, and others who we don't get along with, then our allies will just turn to someone else. They'll turn to China or Russia who don't have that same kind of concern about human rights. And it's very much business natured and transactional. And, and I just don't buy that argument. So anyway, sure. that's the preface of why I care about it, why I ask the question, why I think that we cheapen the concept and weaken the cause if we don't practice what we preach. But I'm sitting in an office in Washington, D.C. What does it look like? Is it same or is it different? If so, how? Uh, sitting in Amman, Jordan. Okay, so I'm going to try and simplify this question because I, I agree with a great deal of what you say. I have, uh, by and large, abandoned the notion that um, third parties can influence how um, 
the human rights situation in a country looks. Uh-huh. I, I, I have, and, and largely I don't think that it, it matters. And I'll tell you why, because I think primarily the evolution or the embrace or the protection of human rights, um, which has become a, an ever-widening definition in terms of, you know, who's human and who's have rights. Do gay people have rights? You know, do uh, transgender people have rights? And, and like, you know, there was a time, okay, first, you know, black people don't have rights and women don't have rights. And, and, and that circle, we've, we've expanded our def- definition of human. Yeah. Get, we're, we're trying, right? Um, at one level, there is that, that, that evolution of values and norms that happens in terms of, again, the, the point that I was making earlier, this notion or the acceptance of the idea that irrespective of your background or your class or your race or your gender or your sexual identity, as a human being, you are you know, privileged to a certain set of rights. They're inherent to just your existence. And we need to acknowledge, respect, and dignify that. Yeah. That, that evolution of norms, I would argue, is, is happening very slowly in the Middle East. I'm not saying it's not happening, but I think it's happening very slowly. And, and nowhere is it more manifest than in sort of the way in which um, just women, for example, live and exist and, you know, try, try and chart their way forward in life throughout the Middle East. So, for example, take Jordan. Jordan has um, a 12% female participation rate in the workforce. 12%. It's the lowest in the Middle East. It's lower than Saudi Arabia. Lower than Saudi Arabia? Lower, lower than Saudi Arabia. Wow. And so, and I, and I know, and I, I don't mean to, I mean, I, I have a fundamental dislike of governments everywhere uh, and we're not picking on the saudis it's no, just no, everybody it, knows that it, but the saudis it becomes it be, it's sort of in the po- in the popular imagination sort of nothing is worse right but in fact um and and one of the things that we're trying to research is trying to understand the, the social norms and values that have created the situation because the country is highly literate women outstrip uh, male university graduates yeah and yet, and yet, sort of their 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 presence and conduct in the economy and in the workforce and society at large is much more constrained. So, you know, what is that, and and how does how does that shift and evolve? Um, so again, this this how values change and how attitudes change because again, this 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 notion that everyone should be allowed to exist and be accommodated in the public and political space is not really a, an idea that necess- that that exists in a lot of. Uh, Middle Eastern political culture. You know, if you t- take Egypt for example, this this notion of who actually has a right to be present in public life and in political life um, uh, is 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 what I think ultimately tore the country apart. Um, and you have to make peace with the fact that you know the most illiberal, uh, ill-informed person has as much of a right to be part of the process as someone who's on the other end of the spectrum. Um, so again, w- the, the embrace of that kind of pluralism in, in public life, I, I think, is some ways away. Um, but then the, 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 the evolution of human rights kind of happens as a, as an, uh, sort of a, a dialectic, if you will, between the evolution of these norms and the evolution of laws and institutions mm. who are willing to accommodate these norms. Yeah. And sometimes you have instances whereby sort of the law supersedes or moves faster than than sort of the values of the people who, who, who may not necessarily subscribe to this idea. If you look at, again, if you look at, for example, desegregation in the US, when the judgment was handed down to desegregate schools um, in the American South, that was a highly unpopular opinion. No one actually, believe that that was you know okay people didn't necessarily want it people didn't accept its ramifications 
Um, but in that sense, sort of the law set the precedent and values sort of struggle to catch up. Sometimes the values move and then the law works to catch up. Fundamentally, the problem in the Middle East is that the law doesn't work. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that notion that you can actually move or, or meaningfully evolve you know, your, your constitutions or your institutions and, and that and that's and that's a danger, right? That's where everything is kind of falling apart. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, I, I don't intentionally draw parallels to Iran, but I hear things that you're saying, and then it reminds me of Iran. Sure. And it sounds to me like what you're saying is the kind of changes that I think most people would like to see, or at least people like you and I would mm -hmm. like to see, uh, is, is generational change. It's not the kind of change that can happen next no. week, next month, next year. Um, and that's an argument that I oftentimes make about Iran. It's like mm. it's not a matter of whether or not these changes should be encouraged. It's a matter of what is the realistic way of bringing them about in such a way that uh, you create the buy-in necessary within the actual society that it affects. Sure. So that, it, and because in my humble opinion, that's more important than what State Department people have to go and brief Capitol Hill on in order to justify budgetary constraints or expansions. Sure. And it's also more important than a talking point that somebody says on television. No, exactly, and this is this is sort of precisely why I was saying that I don't particularly care. Yeah. All due respect, to what sort of you know the EU high representative has to say on a particular issue on human rights, or what the UN has to say. Uh, fundamentally, it, it's not that it. I'm not going to say it doesn't matter. You want there to be a kind of uh, a, a norm again that people aspire to, and the norms have eroded, um, and the quote unquote West has done as much to erode those values as anyone else. Sad but true. But but ultimately, it is how a society evolves should be a consensus of the people who live inside it. Yeah. And and short of that, you're you're basically just talking about social engineering like Iraq, <laughs> which is a frightening prospect. Um, but it's one it's one that people still subscribe to. Yeah, and and you know, you're right. I agree with that, and and so that that's actually a good segue into two specific things, like Iraq and and, and the fact that you live in the region uh, is a good segue into two things I want to ask about. The, the first thing I wanted to ask you about is, uh, so like human rights, I'm also very interested in this idea of sectarianism, uh, oh. because I think it's BS. Not sure. not BS in the sense that it doesn't exist. It very clearly does. But I think that the way that it's discussed. Uh, outside the region, and and maybe inside the region too, and this is where you can sure. you can you can shed some light. Um, I, yeah, I think it, it's total BS. Like, and even Obama's guilty of doing it. Bless the man's heart, where he's like, these conflicts date back a millennia. I'm like, no, 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 no they really don't. No. As a matter of fact, yeah. and uh, in my humble opinion, what this is is this is politicians and religious extremists uh, taking advantage of something that exists in a book that the vast majority of people who practice this particular region don't interpret. Uh, and read and soak in and marinate on and say, you know what, I think I'm going to go blow myself up or kill somebody. That, sure. That's not that's not how it works. No. So it, 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 it's it's human beings that sure. that are doing this, not a religion. And, and and so I think that the whole narrative about this outside of the region is skewed. So my question to you is, does the same kind of misperception, or do you agree that it's a misperception? If you do agree that it's a misperception, does that misperception also exist inside of the region? And then last but not least. Why, uh, why do you think that some governments or multiple governments in the region are using the sectarianism card today in ways that they weren't, say, 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Okay. I, you know how I said earlier that some, we, in the U.S. we talk about certain things with a different language than we do in other parts of the world? Yeah. It's like we call in the Middle East what we're calling sectarianism is almost what I would call populism. 
by another name. Go figure. Yeah. yeah. So what you're really talking about is sort of what is the easiest tool with which I can, you know, gather a constituency or build support for myself or, you know, potentially uh, exploit you know, a, a conflict to my own uh, to my own advantage. I have to say that um, I, I agree with your I, I, I think to say that sort of sectarianism is some sort of deep rooted problem that, you know, has, you know, it, its origins manifest in kind of doctrine and all of this. I, I, no, I, I don't buy that. I don't think that, you know, having done some you know minimal study of jurisprudence and history um, of Islam, you look at it and it's like, OK, people clearly could accommodate each other for quite a long time. Exactly. And 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 now we can't. Um, do I think that 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 that's a kind of a, something that people commonly recognize? No, I think that it's become very very easy um, for people to reach for the superficial answer of like, well, it's clearly the Shia, or conversely, it's obviously the Sunni, or it's the Christians, or you know, obviously the Jews. Everyone kind of still goes for the Jews. Yeah, like let's let's not pretend that that isn't happening. For sure. So. Um, I, it's troubling to me insofar as well. I mean, take a place like Jordan. Um, they have a very, very small Shia population. It's not really like present. You can't really, you, you can't really see it. They certainly exist, but um, they also have a, like a large Christian minority, um, roughly fifteen percent of the country. Um, and again, there's a, there's a sort of the attitude is not we are all kind of members of the same country and society. It's like, well, we're here and we're just going to not talk about it, as though sort of not talking about it is what's is what's holding everything together but that's that's fundamentally kind of belies the problem right? yeah um and and it's it's remarkable to me how um how easily people kind of reach for the sectarian card is sort of well obviously it's because they are x and i'm like oh my god uh <laughs> and and it's it's entire it's entirely in the benefit of you know, kind of people who are currently in power to continue doing that. I, uh, the, the conversation, for example, um, around Bahrain, take a country like Bahrain, right, which is, is essentially under Saudi military occupation. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. Um, but, 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 but the conversation is sort of, you know, sort of troublesome Shia upstarts who kind of need to be kept in their place because otherwise Iran will use it as a sort of, you know, basing point to infiltrate the kingdom um, and of course it becomes a pretext for the way in which Saudi deals with, with, with its own very sizable Shia minority um, but again the, the, this whole conversation kind of links back into this broader picture of like how does one treat all of the people who live in, in these societies how do you the notion of kind of inclusion and participation are basically moot because they don't exist right there isn't a framework for that to happen and so uh, and you're also running out of things to blame. I mean, the political pressures on all these countries is so high, and they're all going to continue fragmenting. And as you say, this is a genera generational problem. Like, for the next 50 years, you and I will have plenty of work because we'll be like, oh, <laughs> and today it's Morocco, and you know, tomorrow it'll be the UAE. And so, um, <laughs> but the uh, but, but but fundamentally, it's sort of these are the questions that these societies are grappling with and really the last resort is still to play the sectarian card in that kind of cheap populist fashion as you mentioned and and, and it's deeply distressing but it's also i guess the kind of the, the pushback against that is i think there is a it, it's not you wouldn't call it secularism but there is certainly a kind of disenchantment with the idea that 
kind of religious principles and guidance are going to solve all of the problems here. And and that's you know that that is true. And so yeah. we, and, and maybe that ultimately becomes the point at which people say, okay, we, we don't want to have this conversation. But that's still some way off, I think. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of a conversation that I had with a lot of my Egyptian-American friends right. when uh, they gunned down the Brotherhood and put Morsi in prison. I was like, um, that's probably not the best way to convince people that turning to religion to solve problems, political or otherwise, is uh, not the best route. Sure. In fact, that might double down their belief that that's the only possible outlet. Perhaps that's the whole reason why the Brotherhood was the only viable alternative after the revolution happened. Like, let's take a step back and, and, and take a look. Anyway, that's, I'm, I'm no, going think, on a tangent. But again, but this is instructive. Like, sort of Islamist parties haven't learned a lesson from that either. No, they haven't. The Brotherhood did not win in the presidential elections by the margin that they, uh, no. that they expected. No, they and not. that, obviously, because the Brotherhood in many ways is kind of never really participated meaningfully in political life and they're still doing politics like 70s style yeah which is you know sort of the very kind of top-down hierarchical political order which has basically become very brittle politics doesn't it's not that it just doesn't work that way in the middle east it doesn't work that way anywhere anymore which yeah. is part of our problem it's sort of how do you kind of how do you provide leadership to these kind of you know your, your population at large or to different constituencies when, when that model doesn't work yeah and and you know, if for those of you listening at home if you haven't listened to the podcast that i did with my friend tim called us he broke this down sure. beautifully like to the point where I, I wasn't even really talking that much sure i was like what could i possibly add to this guy who's of explaining course. what happened from 2011 onward so yeah no you're absolutely right i mean he outlined all of the mistakes and problems uh, of which there were many that were sure. associated with the Brotherhood strategy and the way that they operationalize politics and all of that. Sure. Um, so, yeah, don't want to gun down people if you disagree with them, but also, you know, the Brotherhood made a lot of mistakes Absolutely. that uh, did not cause Egyptian society to sympathize with you will, I, I think, you know, this would have been, this month would have been sort of the end of basically Morsi's term as president. And, I, and, and like, I can't really fathom how Egypt could be any worse off yep. had he stayed in power than it is today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's funny, whenever somebody says Morsi, I picture him sitting next to, I think it was Catherine Ashton at the time, um, adjusting his private parts. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah, it wasn't. It was just. It like, wasn't the most presidential moment. No, then. no, it wasn't. But I was. I, I remember. I looked at my dad, and I was like, "See, you're not supposed to do that in public." <laughs> wow, that is a pretty harsh way to call out your dad. It, well, you know, sometimes you gotta is like. Is he gonna dad listen know. to your podcast? Uh, I hope he's a patient man and will okay. listen to the podcast. But I also take pictures of my dad when he randomly falls asleep, like sitting at the computer at two o'clock in the afternoon, uh, and I then like put it on the on the family like iCloud so that everybody can see. That's this is. This is, I know, I'm, I'm, I'm in no way, shape, or form fit to be around other human beings. But, okay. you know, I think most people know that by now. Uh, but I digress. <laughs> um, there's something else that I wanted to ask you about because yes. you, you had brought up uh, Iraq as an example of numerous things that might not be going well, both in the region and in terms of Western policy towards the region. And um, also this idea of accountability or the lack thereof. Right. Um, yesterday, uh, the Chilcot Report comes out. Right. Uh, as Vice President Biden would say, this is a big effing deal. Right. Uh, it took a really long time for the report to come out, uh, but I don't think that lessens the importance of it. Uh, I don't think that lessens the uh, uh, the impact that it hopefully has, that it should have. But therein lies the rub, right? So be, be, uh, do a couple of things for me here. Okay. Explain to the people what the key findings of the report were, as you understand it, and 
you know, explain what you think the report and its findings mean almost 14 years after the invasion. And then, like, you know, what's, like, to you, what's important about this report? Like, what's the impact of making it public? What, is, what actually changes in the real world? Or does anything actually change? Okay. I'm, I'm going to start sort of out in left field on please this do. point. I always do, so please do. The, you know, the song that I wanted to choose for your opening segment was actually a different Radiohead song, but it was it was sort of so bleak that I thought, okay, that, that's not going to work for the <laughs> listeners. Um, but it's a, it's a song called Harrow Downhill, and it's actually not a Radiohead song. It's a, it's a song that Tom York did as a single on an album he produced in, in 2009. Huh. Uh, and Harrow Downhill is the name of a, a hill in Oxford in the UK, which is where um, David Kelly committed suicide. Now, David Kelly was a nuclear scientist who worked in the UK and basically contradicted the findings uh, of the government when they were uh, in terms of what uh, WMD capacity Iraq had. And there was a, obviously a great deal of suspicion around you know, his suicide. And, and basically, Tom York is alleging in the song that, that possibly he hadn't committed suicide and hadn't ah. been murdered. Um, but you know, ultimately there there was a there was a great deal of um, of anger in the UK as well at the time when when uh, the Blair government took the decision to go to war there, and and you know I, I I'm obviously you know I think that it's important to establish the facts and I think that that's what the 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 Chilcot inquiry set out to do. And the fundamental question it was trying to answer was, did the Blair government intentionally mislead both um, sort of the cabinet and uh, the government at large um, about the, the, the causes for going to war? And, um, you know, had they exhausted all other options? How serious or imminent was the threat um, of WMDs in Iraq? And, 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 and its conclusions are not, I have to be honest, not particularly startling. They're very detailed. And they certainly, um, uh, I think, vindicate a number of people who are, who are friends of mine who were working in the UK, who um, resigned from their positions, who were essentially hounded out of their posts for criticizing the decision to go to war. So, and, and it vindicates those people. And I think that that's important. But Definitely. I th- uh, yeah, but I think here's, here's the real question. And I think this is where people will... <laughs> Are sort of does it actually matter? And again, so so what? Yeah, there is not going to be a sort of a, a criminal process of accountability for what happens. Absolutely here. not, because the only people that go to the ICC are African leaders. Absolutely, um, fairness and policing in the justice system. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, but it, it, it's and then the thing is, is that sort of I have a, a like a permanent standing rage against Tony Blair. It's one of these things that never ever abates. Nor should it. Nor should it. <laughs> I think that this man should be hounded out of public life at every opportunity. The fact that he is able to make money off of what is essentially still the misery of millions of people is 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 shocking and like so outrageous to me. And um, my rage for Tony Blair aside, I think what what still kind of sets people off or why why the you know the results of the Chilquot inquiry were so kind of um, dramatic is is because it was yet another opportunity for this absolute you know, insert expletive of your choice here to come in and justify what he thought was the right thing to do. I'm like, well, that's fantastic. I'm sure that, you know, every kind of sociopath in history has thought this is a good thing. I'm doing this because I, you know, no one comes and says, I'm going to undertake this political project. 
because it's a disaster. No, obviously you think it's the right thing to do, you psycho. <laughs> I just, like, like, it, it's just like such nonsensical, yeah. circular, meaning like, meaningless tautology. So um, do I think anything will actually happen on the back of this? Look, I, I think what's happened again is sort of, look at what happened with the Panama Papers, right? Yeah. I expected there to be, again, sort of riots in the streets in some of these countries when it kind of became clear and not just, everyone has their suspicions about how much corruption exists in a particular place. But once you have it sort of substantiated and kind of in your hands, you think that it generates a different kind of public response. I, 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 have, a, I have a real fear that that's the same thing that will happen for uh, uh, in the aftermath of the Chilcot inquiry, because I think I hope it maybe deters actors from uh, from undertaking the same kind of like really morally repulsive political behavior in the future. Yeah. But again, if no one is actually kind of brought to answer for those things, why should it? Yeah. I mean, it, look, I agree 100 percent. And the problem is that it wasn't just this merry band of ideologues that were uh, a minority in the UK and the US. Absolutely. Like, there was bipartisan support and, uh, you know, I always like to use the analogy of President Obama and uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Mm. Uh, one opposed it from the outset, one supported it from the outset, and never really thought it was the wrong thing to do sure. unless a microphone was put in front of her and she needed to say it for political purposes. Right. Like, I still think deep down she believes it was the right thing to do. Right. Because it fits with her worldview. And this is the biggest problem that I have with uh, when these inquiries happen. And, you know, we had our, our charade, because that's what it was in, uh, yes. on the U.S. end. It was a total charade, and there was zero accountability Absolutely. for the ideologues that put this forward. Sure. And liberal interventionists and neoconservatives uh, continue to make money in this town continue to sure. get government positions, continue to put forward the same kind of recipes for disaster. And again, I'm not speaking on behalf of mm -hmm. Nyack. This is Reza Mashi's personal opinion. They continue to put forward these ideas. Sure. You know, and hey, you know, it went swell in Iraq, so let's go to the countries that uh, border Iraq and let's just do the same thing. Yeah. You know, because in Einstein's definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And it, nobody, very few people... Uh, have the courage to criticize the worldview. They'll be like, no, we have a policy disagreement. Like, you should just state, hey, I, 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 pr I, pr I prefer more progressive policies. You know, I've, I've tried that before. I've right. said, hey, I just prefer more progressive policies. But yeah. then you are essentially providing acceptance mm -hmm. to an idea that does not deserve acceptance. You know, it, 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 it's, it's one of these things where how can you, how can something crash and burn so miserably? And th right. this is a question that I don't know if anybody can answer, but if you want to try, by all means, yeah. how can something crash and burn so miserably and not be completely discarded? Okay. I'm going to try and give you a slightly philosophical answer to that question. Please wow me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, look, I think that the sort of exercise of power works at two levels. There's, you know, we have politics as a way of kind of constraining some of our worst instincts uh, as human beings. And we're, we're, not, we're not like a fantastic species, I no. think. Unfortunately, for all of like the, the grandeur and wonderful things and the occasional raison maroshi, you know, we don't, oh, we don't. Flattery will get you <laughs> everywhere. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we have been intelligent enough to construct this exercise of politics, which is meant to sort of be, okay, how is power going to sh be shared and divided? And we've kind of come up with democracy as the least bad solution to that. Um, 
but then at the, at the second level, politics should ultimately be about the exercise of the public good or the pursuit of the public good. What yeah. is good for us as individuals? What is good for us as a society? But that's a, that's a moral judgment. Um, and somehow, and this is where I, this links to our, our earlier conversation about sort of what is radical in our conversations, we seem to have this disdain for saying that something is good or bad or right or wrong and not to do it in a, in a simplistic way. To say that sort of saying that, you know, a million dead Iraqis don't really matter. I mean, imagine the depth of your moral callousness yeah. or your inability to understand how your choices have destroyed at least two generations in Iraq and, and how it's, it doesn't matter. It, it simply does not figure into your calculus anywhere. Um, and and that's like that's just sociopathy as far as I'm concerned. That's not even a, and we we are afraid to talk about how these decisions reflect on us as humans. And so we have this very like sterile like banal notion of how a politician should conduct themselves and how they have no whims or instincts or desires and have we're all making this calculation on a, on a day to day basis. Uh, in, in every aspect of our life, like should I punch that guy in the face for taking the parking spot I'm clearly waiting for, <laughs> or you know, should I demand that the people who went, you know, who shilled for a war that was illegal and unjust and catastrophic should go to jail? Like these are these are somehow you know these are all again moral calculations. Some are more yeah you know important than others, but we seem to be unwilling to have a conversation about what our exercise of politics and our decisions in political life mean for us as humans yeah. what they mean for us as individuals um, as though sort of this and this is you know um, you know Hannah Arendt talked about this sort of the banality of evil kind of if we're doing it within an institutional confine and under the right set of orders seems that everything is okay and I'm like no at some point you are not exempt from you know, a, a kind of more universal moral calculation for how you behave and the choices that you make, especially when those choices go on to kill a million people. Uh, and, and that, and I agree with you, we seem to be unwilling, just flatly unwilling or sort of shy away from having that conversation because, again, you know, you, you don't want to rock the boat and you don't want to upset people and maybe it affects your ability to get a job. But certainly those people don't seem to have problem, you know, they all fall upwards, right? Nothing bad ever actually happens to those people. But again, Accountability and responsibility. It, 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 it's probably the most troubling and destructive uh, challenge to our political life today. Yeah, 100%. I think what frustrates me the most about it is, you know, you seem like you're a lot like me, not surprisingly, when it comes to this issue awesome. and, and a variety of others. Well, for, clearly, I, <laughs> clearly, I think it's awesome. Clearly, I think it's awesome, but I'm biased. <laughs> uh, I, one of the th so when we say the kinds of things that we're saying now, right? There is an automatic assumption from uh, people who are, you know, willing to play the game. Let's let's describe sure. it that way. They're like, you know, uh, you're being overly critical of the U.S. or Western countries when the real problem is in the region. It's in the Middle East. And like, okay, nobody's denying that there are problems in the Middle East. But what we're saying is, hey, let's have a conversation about where did these problems come from. Maybe some of them aren't all indigenous. Some of them definitely are, but maybe not all of them are. Sure. So let's have a conversation about the problems that we created and frankly let's have that conversation because in most of those countries in the region they can't have that conversation right. isn't that supposed to be what fundamentally makes us better isn't that supposed to be one of the biggest reasons why people 
come to this country as immigrants or refugees. Mm-hmm. Like, shouldn't that be what we're aspiring to? Shouldn't we be self-critical because that's what makes us better in the long run? And and, and people, like, why do you hate freedom? <laughs> you know, like, is, is that what it is? I'm pretty sure that's not what no, it is. I mean, look, there, there, there are so many things to unpack in that in terms of the implied racism of sort of, well, somehow we should be doing it better and they won't do it better. Look, we can... We, we can we don't really I think need to get into that because it's fundamentally nonsense and um, but I, I think it is it's absolutely right that where again there exist there exist the opportunities to have that kind of reflection or critique um, to, to not do it is, is a failure uh, uh, is an individual failure and again I sort of we have this this weird uh, and it's a function of like the size of institutions and the complexity of political life where we sort of tend to kind of ascribe decisions and outcomes and consequences to like a vague amorphous sequence of things that don't concern us but there are human at every level there are individuals and humans who make those decisions yeah and and untangling that is sometimes tricky yeah. But coming back to say that, well, actually, nope, Tony Blair did definitely distort the information he got and the legal advice he got from the UK's attorney general or from any number of experts about what he should do with Iraq. No, we can, act- we can actually trace that. That's what the Chilcot Inquiry did, right? Right. Um, and, and if we don't do it, then in some respect, I feel like we deserve what comes to us, really. That's a fair point. That's a really fair point. And... As I look down, I, so as I always say, I have one page of notes where I just to make sure I'm like, okay, there's absolutely certain things I want to discuss, and then the rest of the conversation is fluid and organic and, and whatnot. And it looks like I kind of hit everything else that I wanted to ask, which is good. Getting things done. Getting things done, and more than half of it came up without me having to look down on the piece of paper, which speaks volumes about you, madam. Wow. Yeah. I'm a mind reader? I, uh, yes. I guess you're just that damn good. Yes. Yeah. Or maybe we both are. <laughs> Can I compliment myself like yes. that? Yes. No, but uh, in all seriousness, uh, I like to end the podcast each episode by asking the guest, do they have anything at all that they want to plug? Here is your chance. You've spent this entire podcast giving knowledge to the people. Now wow. take a moment to be selfish. Is there anything you want to plug? And I'll give you one thing to start with. Okay. Um, because I met you on Twitter, and this is the first time I've actually met you in person, I would highly recommend that everybody follows you on Twitter because oh, I think you're fantastic. hilarious and I think you're sharp and smart and incisive. So tell the people, what's your Twitter handle? Well, I don't really know how I can praise myself more highly than that, but <laughs> uh, my Twitter handle is uh, The Cynicist. Uh-huh. Spell it for the people. Uh, T-H-E-C-Y-N-I-C-I-S-T. Uh-huh. Thank you. And uh, it, it's mostly just uh, shallow insight and profound absurdity. Which is how is, I like to call uh, it. That's that's what the people want. Yeah, and uh, and and I I actually don't have anything to plug. I'm sort of profoundly altruistic in that way as well. It's quite all right. <laughs> Just because you have the opportunity to do so doesn't mean that you necessarily have I to. I know. I'm so sorry. I'm a really bad salesperson. It's okay. Yeah. I, I I think that the the fact that you were willing to take the time while you are on vacation visiting your family. Uh, is, is much appreciated. Totally my pleasure. I uh, know the pleasure is all mine, and I, I'm hoping that we can bring you back for sure next time you come to the states. Great, uh, and we can do a follow up. Uh, <laughs> people can stomach it. I, Let's see how they respond to this. I, I think people are going to like it because the whole idea behind this podcast. So there's a couple ideas. Yes. One is, um, you know, if there's 
fun, exciting, interesting, or, or, or any other adjective you can think of, stuff happening with regards to Iran, obviously we want to cover that. Sure. But Iran isn't the only thing happening in the world. There's a lot of stuff happening around Iran, tangentially related, or maybe even not tangentially related, sure. that I think people need to know about when I have the opportunity to chat with smart people. And then also, I think that uh, Washington, D.C. is a very ageist uh, city. Sure. So people like us who are perhaps on the younger end of the spectrum when it comes to the professional don't life. don't call yourself a millennial. Please don't. I, I don't even know what that means. Okay. Yeah. Right. I, I, I don't, I don't like, I don't like that. Word. Yeah. But we're on the younger end of the professional spectrum. Sure. Um, and we're also not white men. So um, oh. I oh. like to give the, and there's nothing wrong with white men. I'm friends with a lot of them. <laughs> but they just have more avenues, in my humble opinion, sure. to uh, give knowledge to the people. And I like to use this opportunity to give pe uh, people who I think should be heard uh, give them the opportunity to be heard. So thank you. I Rock appreciate on. it. Much respect to you. Thanks, and uh, hopefully you had an, uh, enough fun doing this so that you'll actually come so back. So much fun. Beautiful. Okay. Thank you. Respect. Thank you. Uh -huh.